Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, March 11th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, the doubly vaccinated associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. How's that, how's that second shot of Pfizer headache going? It's, it's there. It's present. There, I, didn't, I didn't expect to have any you know, effects because I didn't have any effects on the first one. But everybody says there was, there, you're going to get some. And you do get some. But it's worth it. Okay, well, I'm not going to vaccine shame you because I believe everybody <laughs> should get the vaccine whenever, including my, so my, my, my children who are not eligible for it yet. Um, and uh, also someone who has children who are not eligible yet for the vaccine, nor is she because she is in a place that won't let her get a shot. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. It's true. If you live in D.C. and the wrong zip code, you you can just, like, I guess, long for your shot maybe this summer. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> and uh, uh, half-vaccinated uh, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Can I bring something to the show now that the truth can be told? <laughs> Ooh, is um, this like an X-Files episode? <laughs> yeah, so... I got my second shot yesterday at a uh, emergency, you know, one of those big pop-up FEMA National Guard sites in Burlington County, New Jersey. Um, and who knows, you know, how it happened. Just there was a list, put my name on it, went down there, did it, you know, new questions asked, which was amazing. New Jersey actually did something right for a change. Shocking. Um, get down there and I saw a, a, a step and repeat, a selfie station, deemed selfie station, which was set up in a particularly dystopian area. This is a recently liquidated Lord and Taylor that had been taken over by the National Guard to administer vaccines to mitigate the ongoing global pandemic. I mean, it's, it's, it's a commentary on society that's hard to ignore. So I took a picture of this, put it up on Twitter. I was like, this is pretty dystopian, yeah? And the universe came down on me, which is hysterical. Uh, I was like, how dare you? How dare you even question the validity of this thing? It was a joke. It was funny. I thought it was funny. Um, the Washington Post wrote up a trend piece around my stupid tweet saying that there was some, you know, that this is how this is, you know, people are shaming people for getting these as, as though there's this real, first of all, most of the people in there are upwards of 60. There's not a big market for selfies in this demo. So it was going relatively unused. And, you know, the Internet overestimates the extent to which people are willing to take a selfie. Anyway, an, an actual newspaper wrote a trend piece around this dumb joke, which is shocking. So anyway, I took a I took my wife made me take a selfie at the selfie station yesterday and I put it up on the Internet just to be like, OK, Internet, you win. There you go. Where's my trend piece? I want my trend piece converted, converted selfie skeptic. Seize the light. Now embrace it. Where are you? Okay, I just want to make I just want to make the point that um, this puts me in mind of an idea, which is the selfie station with the slogan, and you hold up a sign, which is what Noah did. It's like you know I've got my second shot or whatever. Um, bar and bat mitzvahs have these stations uh, now uh, routinely at, uh, and you know of course there haven't really been many of these uh, or or any pretty much in the last year. Um, what if you had the bar and bat mitzvah uh, at, with the Johnson and Johnson vaccine at a at a station? So the kids all got the Johnson Johnson vaccine when it is approved, and then they can do the selfie with the "I am vaccinated" picture, which they can then show when they get on a plane or do whatever they can do in order to show that they have been vac. This is my new bar and bat mitzvah entertainment idea along with the motivators and, and the dance dance revolution and, you know, and the horror, what, what do you guys think? I mean, they, they might actually take advantage of it. Unlike the, you know, septuagenarians who are populating this, this uh, pop-up vaccine distribution site, most of whom aren't really all that interested in selfies. So it really is targeting a younger demo. You, you seem, <clears throat> but I will you, say that everybody, you seem whole, really haunted by this, Noah. Like it's somehow there, there's a there's a there's an element of trauma really, here. The whole atmosphere is very festive, though. It's a, it's a very it's like a fun place to be. Shockingly, everybody's very nice and uh -huh. thrilled to be there. Uh, understandably so. So it it goes with the atmosphere. It's not like it's you don't feel like 
marshaled into this display of false, you know, uh, you know, levity. It's actually, it's a, the, the atmosphere is nice. So. Well, and I've actually, for, for, I've had several friends get vaccinated in different uh, states in the union, and they've all said something similar to what Noah just described, which is once you actually get into the facility and get in line preparing for your shot, the mood is the one that we should be feeling nationwide in general, but that has been deliberately tamped down for all the reasons we've been talking about on the podcast. And that, and the, but they also have with it the, the same sort of anxiety that I think Noah was expressing well, which is that to, to sort of celebrate it yourself can bring down scorn because there are all kinds of judgy, you know, uh, distinctions that people want to make about who deserves the vaccine first. Why are you getting in? What, you know, what race are you? Don't you know about the equity issues? Like there are a whole lot of politicized things around getting the vaccine when what it should be is literally a party. Like we talked about weeks ago where you get the shot and then you get a shot of your favorite liquor and then you go out and enjoy yourself. <laughs> That's right. I mean, the failure to do this in an egalitarian way has essentially given everybody a permission to ask for your medical history which used to be kind of taboo and kind of still should be. Well, I mean, let's put it this way. One of the things that has been real by social media culture over the last, you know, 10, 15 years is that um, uh, everybody will be censorious about everything. There is nothing you can do that will not, will not be the recipient of some form of scorn, figure wagging. It can be a misunderstanding. It can be just sort of like Mrs. Grundyism you know, puritanical disapproval, uh, ranging to political, you know, being attacked for being politically correct or being politically incorrect, whatever. It's more that we pay attention to it. It's more that it affects us, that it happens. Um, and it's just this, this, um, revelation about human nature that, uh, a world in which people, uh, can deliver aggressive blows to other people they don't know, haven't met, may never encounter turns out to be just too delicious an opportunity. The seduction, the kind of demonic seduction that is represented by, you know what? There's a person there who just did something. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to kick him in the balls. But I'm going to kick him in the balls. He'll never know. He doesn't know who, he won't know it's me. Because and, and the pleasure is, of course, in the doing of it because it's just motiveless malignity, as Coleridge said of Iago in, you know, uh, Shakespeare's Iago. But here's the the stranger part, is that um, as that becomes more clear, um, that that is what everyone wants to do, there is this other um, sort of counter drive um, that has more and more people wanting to share what they're doing and opening themselves up to these kicks in the balls. I mean, you know, well, well, yeah, it's a weird masochistic a, right. impulse, actually. Yes. It's true. Yeah. No, I mean, look, it's it's like this um it's like this bizarre um Pavlovian response thing uh for like, I don't know, teenage whatever, uh, people on on Instagram, right? Which is that they do something performative or revelatory, they think it's funny or they want to talk about themselves or something like that. And then, of course, I'm not sure that absent something going wildly viral, any response isn't going to be disappointing or soul-crushing a little bit because you'll never be fully understood. A lot of people will say, you know, your friends will say, I love you so much or you're so great or something like that. But somebody will say something snarky. You won't get enough likes. You won't get enough, you know, you won't get enough support, whatever. It is almost like a recipe for emotional disaster every time somebody... Uh, you know, sensitive or, you know, whatever, like does something like this. Um, and so we have this um, bizarre circumstance where people are, are, are like chasing this dopamine rush uh, and then subjecting, you know, putting themselves up for some form of emotional abuse for doing so. This is a, like a terrible psychological cycle. Uh, it, it seems to me, and this is, of course, why I believe that no one should ever ever tweet uh, anymore, having uh, because uh, uh, the 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 risk and reward uh, calculus is just wildly out of whack. There's too much risk for very limited reward, um, and that risk can be professional, it can be psychic or emotional. Like the the risk is real, and the just the the world of people who are, who do this for the purpose of looking for options and opportunities to make people feel bad 
and I put myself in that category betimes on Twitter. It's one of the reasons that I think it's morally better that I'm off than I'm on. Uh, is is a you know it's just it's like the devil it's like the cartoon devil on your shoulder whispering in your ear and it is very seductive. Can I just but there, there's also an evolution that's gone on in these platforms. It's created a different creature. Not that I think most people, average people who go online, that's often their experience. But there's also people who have ta- who who have who understand how the how it works and create for themselves an online persona that in some ways invites the criticism and attention on the idea that all, you know, any attention is good attention, whether it's negative or positive, and then turn themselves into professional victims after having posted stuff that literally invited critique, <laughs> then saying, oh. how dare you? I mean, this is actually a, for, for public figures and celebrities in particular, this is a common thing. I mean, I look, I like some of her music, but Lizzo does this with body shaving. Like she posts half naked pictures of herself on Instagram. And if anyone's like, eh, I don't like that look, it's oh, how dare you body shame Lizzo? Oh my God. I mean, it's just, it, it's right. a thing it, people do. Right. Yeah. So it's kind of so, yeah. so addicted to the negative feedback that you become a deliberate provocateur. Yep. And then right. you just you're saying things designed to annoy people and you get that rush otherwise. But I also don't know if it's necessarily valuable to completely surrender these platforms to the scolds, in part because they do have an outsized impact on society. They do have an outsized impact on how news is disseminated and generated. News producers, they take their cues from these sort of things. So if you, you know, were to just say, okay, like this was when I posted this thing, it was a joke. I thought it was funny. And, you know, I knew it was going to generate some, some negative feedback because everything always does, but also to not, to not tell the joke I thought was an abdication of my responsibility to my sense of humor. Okay. But here's the problem. Okay. But here's, here's the problem with what the risk reward calculation, which is, there is no individual tweet that you can do, and I mostly did jokes, right? That was my, that was who I was, a stand-up comedian on Twitter in some ways. There is no individual tweet that could be worth the disaster that might befall you from one individual tweet uh, that you, that you, where you cross a line you're not sure you knew you were crossing, or you thought you were being funny but provocative, and then you just get you know, just slaughtered. I mean, my my example of this was in 2014 during the Gaza War in Israel when uh, um, uh, I and others were intensely critical of then Secretary of State John Kerry for, uh, you know, his um, absurd, preposterous fantasy of doing shuttle diplomacy between Hamas and Israel. And his version of shuttle diplomacy was to just attack Israel. And, you know, make, and then at some point, John Legend said something like, I am sick and tired of people attacking my secretary of state for doing his job and, you know, trying to bring peace or something like that. And then I tweeted at him or responded with, shut up and sing, which, of course, is a phrase that we on the right use in relation to celebrities who get out over their skis in relation to politics that they don't know anything about. And I don't know, 5,000 attacks later claims that I had, you know, I I was telling him to, you know, eat watermelon and, you know, tap dance, stuff like that. I deleted the tweet. I apologize. My, my point I'm bringing up here is that you don't know what you don't know about this culture. And it is going in directions that one never thought that it would go and was it wrong for me to tweet up and sing a John Legend? It wasn't wrong. Was it insanely imprudent? Yeah, as it turned out, it was insanely imprudent because all it did was cause me grief and pain and annoyance and nervousness. You know, uh, you know, it's not fun to have a mom. I didn't. It wasn't physically afraid. Um. But I thought it was bad, you know. Uh, and then, of course, there's that thing where people bethink themselves, right? And they delete a tweet. Right, they delete a tweet because they wrote something. They're sorry they wrote it. They delete it, and then there's this ah, I screenshotted the tweet. The fact that you deleted it proves that it's even more evil. The fact that you actually responded by saying, "I wish I hadn't said this, so I'm going to get rid of it." That's du- your double time. Then the image of the tweet that was deleted becomes a story. 
in itself. Okay, but, so, you but again, like I mean, and we've I've had this discussion offline with with Noah, who who I think has a good principle, which is like if you tweet something dumb and you're like, eh, I rethought that, I'm taking that down. You shouldn't attack the person if they've actually had a change of heart and they post, you know what, this was stupid, I'm deleting this, or I was factually inaccurate, I'm deleting it. That's fine, and I totally agree with that. But the, again, there's a whole bunch of people, Neera Tandon was the most recent example, who go through their feeds and delete anything controversial, not because they don't believe it anymore, but because they don't want it to have an impact on, on their current professional lives. And I think there are a lot of reporters who do this. There are a lot, there's certainly a lot of people in political life who do this. And they don't do it because they've changed their minds. In fact, they don't even mention that they do it. They're literally like memory holding stuff that might make them look bad now. So I think the distinction is important, particularly with people in political life, because they know exactly what they're doing and they're trying to actually hide their real thoughts so that they can get a promotion. And that right. should concern people. Yeah, I would say my rule doesn't apply as an evidentiary standard. If, right. if this exactly. is being submitted as evidence right. yeah. in a congressional <laughs> hearing or a courtroom, then right. yeah, you right. can dig up the old tweet. Right. Well, I mean, I, you know, the 10, 12 years ago, whatever, like two or three years into the Facebook era, before I got involved in Twitter and before I think before Instagram was a thing or stuff like that, I I was a defender of Facebook on the grounds that I thought that it was a lovely way for people to keep in touch with people that they had fallen out of touch with. It was like a kind of holiday letter, you know, those Christmas letters that people used to send out. So it was a kind of like ongoing daily way to check in with people whom you couldn't see to find out who their kids were, did they have grandkids, where are they living, what's life like, it was so it's good to see you, you know, send a nice message, say, you know, I'm so glad to see that you're thriving, whatever, and then, then and building new different kinds of communities for people who are introverted or shy or, you know, have social anxiety and all of that. And I think that was really largely true of social media for the first three or four years of its expansion. And then this demonic quality began to start suffusing it. Um, and Abe. Well, I mean, I, I've wondered about this. I mean, I, I I understand what you mean by the lovely uh, aspect of it, but I'm not sure that even that quality itself is not, um, it, there's not the seeds of something bad there because it changes the sort of the course of a life in the, in the sense that, it used to be that you grew up, you did things, you moved away, or you 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 found a new family, and you left certain things and people behind, and certain things and people left you behind, and you moved into a new place, and there was a sort of linear aspect to the course of a life. Um, with Facebook and social media generally, but Facebook especially, you never lose anyone. It's just, it, it, there's now, life is just this, this you, you everything just aggregates, you just... You meet someone and now they're 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 on your page. They're in your life, sort of forever. You 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 can't lose touch with someone, and I think you're supposed to lose touch with people, um, in, in certain ways. Gen, it, it, I mean, yeah, genuine. no, no, right? And, no, I, I mean, right. But I do think there is a certain type of person, uh, that uh, for whom uh, conventional social relations are very difficult. But for whom uh, uh, this kind of distanced relationship, sort of not almost, even though there are photos and stuff, sort of nineteenth-century epistolary relationship, creates the possibility of sort of intimate conversation and uh, and and commonalities on matters of interest, including matters of interest that are of no interest to anybody else. You know, if you're like a ham radio, if you're somebody who likes to build, you know ham radios or something like that you can find people all over the place who like what you like and are obsessed with the same kind of things that no one else in your life can even bear to think hear about because it's so boring but not to these people that that's really nice but you stretch that a little further and you can also find the people who also believe that hillary clinton is sucking the adrenochrome out of children's bodies um and that you know uh you know and, and a way to organize you know <clears throat> wild main anti-semitism and stuff like that but that but that actually is and i mean you all know my feelings about social media but this this is this is the point right because the platform itself rewards both things equally and it does that because what it is removed is is a bit what of, of what abe is saying which i agree with which is that the uh, with 
the choice to leave certain behind, you also leave behind certain obligations. What Facebook does is there's no obligation. How many people stopped writing people's birthdays in their calendars to remind, to, right. to wish their friends happy birthday? Because Facebook now does it for you. It has actually taken over some of the intimate obligations we had with the people we chose to be with, given us more people, but fewer obligations. And I think that kind of selfishness socially is, is not a good thing, whether it's for people who have the same hobbies as you or people who have the same conspiracy theories as you. Yeah, it's it sort of flattened all, all relations in that sense, right? Because uh, you, you, you're wishing everyone a happy birthday now, as opposed to the special people. You know, <laughs> you know that's an interesting. That is an interesting point. Um, uh, you know how we live, uh, how we live in a society, how we relate to each other, how we how we uh, build community and have a community that is uh, enduring, not only over the course of our lifetimes, but over the course of millennia and civilizations. Um, is in part the story that you will learn from Mark Gerson's book, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life, his his study of the Haggadah, the manual guidebook, prayer book of the Passover Seder with Passover approaching uh, at the end of March. Um, this is the, a perfect timing to, to dig deep into this book, which is about how this volume and the, and the two Seder's uh, one in one in Israel, but two outside of Israel. Um, these these two seders um, every year are uh, crucially and uh, crucial and vital elements in the maintenance and furtherance and preservation of uh, the Jewish faith and the Jewish people in the uh, effort to remind uh, every year. Uh, everyone at the table that they could have been slaves in Egypt, that uh, uh, God saved them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and signs and wonders, and that uh, and that the Jewish people have a purpose and a destiny that was laid out for for us three millennia ago or longer, and that that is a both an incredible birthright and an incredible responsibility. <clears throat> to to uh, to keep maintained um, as we move forward. So that's the telling how Judaism's essential book reveals the meaning of life by Mark Gerson. Available now at Amazon, at Barnes and Noble, at your local bookseller, wherever you might want to find it. So um, tonight, Joe Biden will give a speech, uh, taking a victory lap on his uh, coronavirus relief package while commemorating or memorializing or mourning the uh, just absolutely horrific uh, death toll as we approach pretty much this week. I think tomorrow actually marks the day that the Broadway theater and the NBA uh, shut shut their doors uh, uh, in March of 2020. So we are now basically a year into the massive social cost of the pandemic becoming, you know, absolutely uh, unquestionable. Um, so he will do that while talking about his coronavirus relief bill, and then he will sign it uh, with great fanfare on uh, tomorrow, on Friday. Um, Abe, you were noting uh, an interesting, uh, uh, let us say, uh, uh, transition um, b- between now and uh, between how, how the bill is now being characterized now that it's been signed, or, or increasingly over the course of the past week, this bill, which was uh, designed to save us from terrible depredations and the people of America from the horrible costs of the pandemic into something else. Yeah, well, it struck me. <clears throat> there's a piece on, on the, in the New York Times that says, you know, uh, with with this bill, uh, we see the evolution of Joe Biden as being, uh, I don't know, a, 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 a politician who is primarily concerned with foreign policy and the middle class to being a crusader for the poor. Um, this is a, a 30-something year evolution, and uh, of course, it's one to be celebrated, and, and therefore the, the, the bill now is, um, yeah, being uh, uh, celebrated and championed um, less as uh, a, a sort of um, targeted response to the pandemic, but as um, a, a huge leap forward for uh uh, you know uh, this this type of activism for for 
or po- poverty relief and 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 you know all, all the rest of it. The, the the can I just read one quote from the Washington Post reporting on this because this is actually it's a really important transition. I see Noah is nodding. He's heard he heard the, so Ro Khanna. You're just about to say the exact yeah, same thing. Ro Khanna from California's quote. He called the bill quote an ideological revolution on behalf of justice. Another representative, Richard Neal, House Ways and Means Committee chair says, we're we're not creating a narrative talking about changing lives. We're going to do it with this legislation. I mean, this is extremely, this is, this, this is, you know, a big swing they're taking here, turning a relief bill into a, you know, this is our new New Deal kind of talk at the cost. And, and it's a big shift and it's happening quickly. And I think the, the Biden, uh, you know, making fetch happen as Biden is a poverty warrior is part of it. Yeah, that's um, <clears throat> there's a, just a paradigmatic divide here over talking about this bill that I don't know how you even bridge it because these are two different versions of reality. The a different Washington Post piece um, explored in great detail how just you know you can get it from the headline how Biden stimulus showers money on Americans sharply cutting poverty because it favors individuals over businesses. Um, and if you think as people like as reclined to, that giving people money is the equivalent of an anti-poverty program, then this is this is great for you. Um, a one-shot deal where individuals get, let's say, $3,600 if you have two kids, right, over the course of a year. Um, the notion that that cuts poverty, uh, unless you do it in perpetuity, even then, is is um, a highly debatable premise. But it's it's betrayed by the fact that they think giving businesses stimulus or tax cuts or anything to invest in capital and create opportunities for employment and therefore create productivity, which which uh, contributes to the overall economy and then generates this self-perpetuating cycle of economic activity, that that doesn't create wealth. That's not a wealth creation. You just yeah. have to give people money. This is this is a, a flawed idea of how economics work at, at a at a base level, at a, like a 101 level can't actually have a conversation about anti-poverty programs because the two sides just don't understand what poverty is. Right. Well, I mean, there are two, two things to be said about that. One is that um, it's not that you can't have a conversation. It is that it is that uh, the, the terms, the goals are different at the end, right? Is the idea that what you want to do is lift people, do what you can to create the conditions under which more people can be lifted out of poverty into the middle class and stay there, right? Or is the other that you wish to create a society in which um, uh, suffering people are supported uh, by um, everybody else uh, and that this is the mark of a humane society? These are two different kinds of goals, uh, though the the end result, part of what uh, what uh, conservative thinking on on macroeconomics says is that by not pursuing the second goal, you can more readily and easily achieve the first. I mean, you can achieve uh, the greater the 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 realization of people uh, improving their positions, enhancing their family options making more money, having more opportunity, being able to create their own businesses, all of that, if you pursue a larger strategy of making the economy more rational, uh, eliminating unnecessary rules and structures that hamper that kind of thing. Um, But if, if that's not really your aim, but your aim is a fairer society, or you know, as as understood in some social justice context, then the first is is never the, the you know achieving great results as we did with the economy uh, of the 1980s and to some extent of the 1990s uh, is seen not as a great result because some of the results don't don't jibe with that, like increasing in income inequality, which is an inarguable fact. It's a real thing. The question is not whether there are way more billionaires or, or, or you know, a billionaire uh, or whatever, but um, what is it like for the mass of people in the United States or in the world? How are they, how, how do they do? Well, and this- saying, and saying, let me just finish this yeah. one thought, saying that people in the lowest quintile 
that the life of people in the lowest quintile has not improved, right? That the income levels of people in the lowest quintile have not improved over the last 40 years, which is what people say to show that our society is is terrible and unfair, is a ridiculous way of looking at it because the people who were in the lowest quintile were in 1982 are not in the lowest quintile in 2022. People in the lowest quintile in, nine, in 2022 will tend to be young, uneducated, uh, ill-trained and all of that. And the question is, how, where, where are they going to be in 2062? Not where are they going to be in 2023? But that is not the way people on the left think about it. And so it's not that we can't have a conversation. It's that we have, we, we sort of want the same things and have wildly disparate understandings of the world and how you get there. Well, right, the it, problem is the existence of a lower quintile. Which there will right. always, right. but be. by definition, there will have to be a lower quintile. Uh, Jonah Goldberg made this point in his uh, G file this week, which is if you eliminate the top one percent, then the next one percent becomes the top one percent. Well, and there's, but there's also baked into this particular bit of uh, narrative creation on the part of Democrats with the COVID relief bill a weird contradiction, right? Because if this is this supposed to be this far-reaching anti-poverty measure that's going to transform the country, why this is these are all short-term fixes. These are not permanent. That suggests either this is like the Trojan horse that will bring in the next round of legislation to make a lot of these, you know, big spended big spending items, you know, permanent, which I don't think is going to fly with the American people. Or they're lying. I mean, it, there's a contradictory message there. It's either transformative because they're making this policy going forward, you know, ad infinitum, or we're doing this temporarily. People are going to get checks. They're going to be happy with us. And then we're really going to bring it on. And we know that there are plans for this. The infrastructure bill, that's the next big thing that Democrats want to do, uh, had initially, I think Biden would, would when he was campaigning, would say $2 trillion. We're going to, it's going to be a big thing. Green New Deal stuff will be in there. We'll pack it full of all these progressive ideas. Well, now if you talk to some Democrats on the Hill, they're like, well, $2 trillion is just the start. I mean, we really $4 trillion is what we're thinking about. I mean, these numbers are insane. So I want to know, are these temporary measures meant to alleviate the effects of this, this you know, once in a generation horrifying pandemic? Or is this just the start of a larger plan to spend even more money that we don't have? Well, so there's another, <laughs> go back to the New York Times, there's an opinion piece today by uh, Rachel Cohn. Piece is called, The Coronavirus Made the Radical Possible. And it lists, you know, a whole bunch of things from sort of landlords not collecting rents to to police defunding to whatever else. All these things that happened uh, during the pandemic. And uh, she goes and, of course, uh, she sees these all as um, for being for the good. And then there it, it, there is this question uh, and she's about how, how can we continue these policies that were uh, uh, that were only in place during the pandemic? And she says she closes. We're still months from the end of this calamity which has killed more than half a million Americans and severely disrupted the lives of countless more. But the time to push for permanent change is now. This is the moment to ensure that lessons from the pandemic become part of the policy conversation moving forward. To remember, we can do more than conventional wisdom would have us believe. That's the new conversation. I mean, the things that we're actually talking about here that that Noah brings up about, about why um, uh, these these kinds of policies um, betray a, a a complete lack of understanding of basic economics. Those conversations don't even happen anymore, right? I mean, no one counters the only the only sort of uh, conversations about um, radical economic policy propositions now are like, you know, are are you a racist who's not going to get behind this, or uh, uh, are you uh, an anti racist who's going to give us your full support? There's there's been a sort of the science has settled kind of aspect to to this discussion. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, Gavin, look, Gavin Newsom said this yesterday yeah. in a state of the state address, um, <clears throat> quote, when this pandemic ends and it will end soon, we're not going back to normal. Normal was never good enough. Normal accepts inequity. Right. Well, it's build back better. Right. Yeah. That's yep. if you actually I, we sat around for a year going, what the hell is he talking about? Well, now we know. Well, and this has been build back this- better means yeah. never miss an opportunity to mm-hmm. never let a crisis go to waste. We are going to use this crisis to reinstitute the great society that we actually had to spend decades dismantling because its consequences were so incredibly deleterious. 
Well, and this is why the elision of equality and equity is really important and why conservatives should continue to keep their eye on that. Anytime you hear the word equity, that's what it means. It means this build back better. We want year zero thinking, you know, we're going to rebuild and remake society in our the image that progressive Democrats think it should be, it should look like. Downward social leveling, because that's the only thing that this government is, is capable of actually doing. They're going to find out that this isn't an anti-poverty program. It won't eliminate poverty, but you can take stuff away from that uh, 1% and therefore level the playing field downward. Well, but you know what? They haven't taken anything away from the top 1%. That's the interesting thing that's going on here that I think Christine's point about the temporary nature of this bill really brings into focus, which is that, okay, so they're going to spend $2 trillion on top of the $4 trillion that we have already spent to alleviate the uh, consequences of the pandemic. That's $6 trillion in spending in the last year uh, in in an emergency. And most of us do not gainsay the larger, you know, the the lion's share of that, right? Because uh, something had to be done in order to keep the world from, uh, you know, turning into the 1930s again. And and there was very little pushback against that. But next year, the bill comes due again for all of the programs that have been put in place for a year. And they've done this without raising taxes. They've done this without, you know, sh- changing the way the tax code deals with most people. That cannot be the case come 2022. Is there going to be the stomach in the United States for a significant overhaul of the tax code that will involve, of necessity, not just taking money away from the top 1%, but adjusting tax rates that will hit the middle class? Because if you need a huge pool of money to fund this kind of action, there actually, in fact, are not enough rich people in the United States to pay for it. You need the mass of 175 million people who are in the middle to pay more into the federal you know, uh, treasury to pay for these bills. And that's where the rubber meets the road. And we have no idea. We're talking about a, a Senate that is split 50-50 and a Congress in which Democrats have a five-seat majority until the, until the next election. Are they going to overhaul the tax code? Are they going to pass another two billion, two trillion dollar bill to pay for, uh, you know, essentially aid for families with dependent children, and give uh, and 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 more givebacks to to um to unions and things like that? I don't know. I just don't think that we can know until the politics. Now we have the politics of he won the election. He has this tiny majority. He's going to get his first bill done and here comes the first bill right that's and here it is and and they shoved everything in it that they could possibly shove in it but i don't think he's getting much else right he's not going to get the voting rights bill hr he's not going to get the criminal justice bill and he's not going to get the climate change bill because he's not getting 60 votes no we're going back to the infrastructure pinata <clears throat> which, you know, even the moderates in the Senate, Democratic and Republican uh, uh, Senate want, but, you know, they're talking about $4 trillion and also talking about tax increases to pay for it. And the notion here that you can offset that. I mean, people like Angus King and Joe Manchin, they're saying, you know, we, we need this, but we got to pay for it somehow. So we've got to have tax increases. But like you said, a progressive structure here wouldn't get the job done. So then you have people on the outside of the policy conversation now who are talking about things like a a national sales tax, a VAT, which is incredibly regressive. But it's precisely the sort of thing that would actually fill the coffers, would help, you know, make the treasury whole. Um, And a lot of people are going to start warming to this idea because regressive taxes are the only way to actually get what they want done. That's right. Okay, guys, listen. On October... Second, 2018, Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi entered the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, Turkey, and was never seen alive again at a time when America is focused on its domestic problems. There's one documentary that reminds us there are unbelievable and shocking events unfolding around the globe, nominated for a BAFTA, the new documentary, The Dissident, boldly looks into the events and intrigues surrounding the murder that shocked the world. Senator Lindsey Graham says there's not a smoking gun, there's a smoking saw. 
The movie not only unearths new proof, it ultimately exposes his killer. Senator Rand Paul states the evidence is overwhelming that the crown prince was involved. Playing out at the highest levels of power and wealth, the Associated Press calls the dissident a real-life thriller. Are you ready for the truth? From the Academy Award-winning director of Icarus, The Dissident, rated PG-13, now available at home on demand. Please visit thedissident.com for more information. Um, so uh, we are moving into this uh, grand new uh, great society. This has all been done. Uh, Biden will take a uh, victory lap and then... Uh, we will turn to the next great American crisis. I'm not talking about the border, which apparently is the next great American crisis, but not one that the media are going to want to talk about. I am talking about the trial of Derek Chauvin in Minneapolis um, in the uh, murder and the uh, alleged murder of of George Floyd. Um, I don't think we have quite uh, taken in the fact that our lives are about to be taken over by this trial. It will become the major news event of March and April. Uh, every, I think, every twist of the tale, every moment that happens in the courtroom, every uh, piece of testimony, anything that anybody says and does, and the very fact that Chauvin will stage, as is his right and need, an aggressive defense claiming that Floyd was... Uh, had uh, drugs in his system uh, that uh, he did not die from uh, from from having been knelt on, but from some form of overdose and various other things. That these claim the fact that he will dare to claim this in a courtroom will itself be seen as an act of you know uh, of evil. Um, and and so in the middle of the trial, I think we might be likely to see protests, riots, things like that, just from the news reports of what's going on in the courtroom before there is a decision made is that I, I, I know I'm sounding apocalyptic and, 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 and bleak, but. Uh, well, no, I mean, things are already, but things are already turning apocalyptic. Um, in Minneapolis, there is now a, a new, one of these autonomous zones, um, which is this sort of um, uh, paramilitary style uh, anarchist uh things that popped up like uh, over the summer in Seattle and in Portland um, uh, of protesters. And uh, apparently someone was shot there within the zone over the weekend. And the police were not, couldn't get in, were blocked from getting in. And the person's body was brought out of the autonomous zone, you know, dead to presented um, uh, because there's no one, no one allowed in, including, uh, including other protesters. Yeah, I think the scenario you outlined, John, is more likely than not, because it's a very different world than it was <clears throat> seven years ago. But seven years ago is the counterexample, which was the trial of George Zimmerman for the killing of Trayvon Martin. Um, news media followed every moment of that trial. Cameras were on. Uh, witnesses became national celebrities for a brief moment. Uh, the attorneys became national celebrities for a brief moment. And the course of a trial has the effect of muddying the water um, because there are, there is disparate evidence presented and much of it is uh, factually credible and to the point where you can't actually deny it. And it becomes a long drawn out process. That is not this emotional shock. The shock of it is, um, is mitigated by the uh, proceedings and it was my assumption based on having watched and covered every moment of that trial for my employer at the time media, I, that there would not be violence. Everybody predicted and anticipated violence as a result. Um, and it did not materialize. Uh, now, again, this is a very different world, a very different political culture that we're in than we were in 2013. So I think it's more likely than not that your scenario manifests, but it's not impossible that um, cooler heads prevail based on a real rational internalization of the evidence that's presented. There is no there is no body cam footage or whatever it is of George Floyd dying uh with Derek Chauvin's knee I not you know like like going into his death spiral with uh, uh Derek Chauvin's knee on it there was no such thing with Trayvon Martin and uh and and Zimmerman there was no such thing with Michael Brown uh in Ferguson that footage itself changes the context here entirely because tens of millions of people watched that 
and know know what happened. And so the um, the mitigating evidence that 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 Chauvin and his lawyers will bring up simply have to stand in contrast to what people saw with their own eyes. Christine, I'm sorry. Well, I no, I, I agree. And I think that the, the other thing that's different is the power and quite frankly, the huge amount of money that's been thrown at what was before, a, a you know, a kind of more radical Black Lives Matter movement. They've been mainstreamed in people's minds, but their mission hasn't been mainstreamed at all. In fact, it's just this, it's pretty much the same thing it always was, but with a heck of a lot more uh, money behind it and a lot more social approval, although that is dropping. Like the, the the distinct thing to me is just how much, I think it's less than 50% now approve of Black Lives Matter compared to last summer. But, you know, the the Minneapolis chapter of Black Lives Matter has been going on, uh, you know, to local news media had, out ahead of the trial and saying things like, this is terrible. You know, they ha- they're putting barbed wire fencing up instead of giving us money for, you know, our troubled youth. Well, of course they are, because this place descended into rioting and mayhem for weeks and many, you know, at, at the cost of millions of dollars and lives lost and businesses destroyed. And they are preparing this time for that to happen. And a lot of the kind of the hints and winks and nods from from progressive activists and particularly some of the Black Lives Matter activists has been saying exactly that, like, you better make the right decision here or else you know what's coming. And that is why they've prepared. They've had to beg for further law enforcement support. National Guard troops are standing by. I mean, this isn't a joke. The, the people in Minneapolis are preparing for a kind of siege and they are likely to get it regardless of the outcome. I think there's going to be a lot of trouble We, you know, in here in D.C., Right up leading up to the election, we had a lot of businesses boarded up, a lot of people kind of preparing. They were not preparing for angry Trump supporters as it happens, even though later in January we got those too. They're preparing for people who would be angry that Trump won if he if he won re-election. So Minneapolis is going through this as well. It's really it's interesting to me that that's not something anyone wants to discuss. Is that there's a kind of weird overlay of blackmail going on in terms of how officials are are, are made to respond to these sorts of moments. But that blackmail is 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 itself. I mean, what what what's fascinating here is, of course, you know that that mayor, uh, what is his name, Jacob Fry, you know, the one who was forced to walk through the crowd looking like he was a shamed fourteen year old boy in his t shirt uh, when he went to try to talk to the to the uh, to the George Floyd crowd uh, over the summer. So there he is. Um, you know, it's his city. And uh, they have to prepare to make sure that the city is not destroyed. By the res- but, of course, he can't say what, you know, urban politicians 50, 60 years ago would have said, which is, you know, you, you know, you make trouble and there's going to be trouble for you. You, you know, if you riot, if you do this, if you do that, we are, co- we are coming down with the full force of the law on you. And he can't say that because, of course, the whole idea is that if anybody is angry, that's righteous. And if, they, if they're if they stirred to some kind of violence, that's kind of understandable given the givens. And when you, when you can't use that kind of deterrent threat, uh, uh, you, of course, make it much more likely that there will be the response that you fear. So they're doing all this, but they're doing it silently. They're doing it without any any effort to, uh, as we say, publicly message that uh, criminal behavior during the Derek Chauvin trial will not be tolerated. Um, and so one really wonders what you know how that that's going to be tested. All I'm saying, by the way, is that I think what's different is trials are intended to bring down the temperature, and then the result may be you know something awful. But uh, as the process goes along, it is supposed to make it, you know, this has now gone into a place where it is going to be resolved. And I'm saying what's different here is that there will be performative public response to the testimony. And that, I think, is new. I mean, maybe I, I can't really, maybe I'm I'm misremembering and stuff like this happened before, but I think that will be new. If there is like a, 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 a looting, uh, a kind of some sort of looting frenzy or something like that in the middle because somebody says George Floyd had fentanyl in his system and he died of an overdose of fentanyl, that that's not the whole purpose of trials is to is to create the conditions under which uh, posse's don't come and you know lynch people, right? That's that's 
part of what they're there for. Um, there are also two charges now. There's the second degree murder charge and a reinstated third degree murder charge. Um, then the evidentiary standards to convict on a third degree murder charge are, are probably pretty meetable by um, progressive or uh, prosecutors in this in Hennepin County. So, you know, what happens if he is acquitted on second degree and convicted on third degree? Probably exactly the same thing you're anticipating, John, because there's very little deliberative process going on here. But nevertheless, it changes the nature of of the fa- of the, the the level of justice that has been done, if that's the outcome. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you have to remember that um, in terms of you know sort of what would provoke what kind of response that when the when the tape first was released and and um, George Floyd was killed or died. Um, there was virtually no one on any anywhere in the political spectrum who wasn't horrified, absolutely disgusted, and shocked and horrified by what they saw. Um, and yet, the there was the response, sort of activist response, was as if people were uh, had approved of this um, or, or were complacent about it. You know, um, they were sort of um, pushing on an open door. So I don't, or, or tearing down an open door. So I don't, you know, I don't know what kind of um, sentence would 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 ameliorate anyone's outrage here. Well, and they, I mean, there's two things I've noticed just from the kind of lead up. There've been, you know, there've been some protests and everything already, and like silent marches, and um, you know, a lot of the banners, interestingly, have a weird have a message that say things like "The world is watching." Justice for George Floyd. So there's like clearly an awareness of like this matters not just to our particular justice system and the people who live in this country, but this is going to be symbolic in the same way that, you know, George Floyd's death became symbolic. So that there's that point. There's also the fact that in the early jury selection, they are asking, defense attorneys are asking potential jurors their thoughts about Black Lives Matter. And we know this because, you know, there's been reporting about it in New York Post and other places. And, you know, some of the jurors say, eh, I don't, you know, I, I obviously the statement is true. I don't like the organization. Then they're asked follow-ups about like, what about Blue Lives Matter? They're like, yeah, same thing. Like, you know, everybody should be treated humanely. Like this is not like I, they, they don't like the ideological message. I suspect that even that is a radical statement that some would argue would mean that a juror couldn't, you know, possibly be uh, objective about assessing the evidence because, again, of the social acceptance of the idea that, you know, if you don't support Black Lives Matter, you're a racist. I mean, I've heard that out of the mouths of people mm-hmm. who I who are who used to be, I thought, classically liberal people. It's like you support this organization or you're racist. That's that's a that's a, a migration from how we used to approach these these matters, and I don't think it's necessarily a good one in in terms of uh, you know a trial situation. No, Look, this could all this could all this could all drive you crazy. It could totally drive you crazy. And of course, in 2021, mental health is finally a thing. So many people struggling right now, not feeling like their normal selves, and therapy helps. It doesn't have to be sitting around just talking about your feelings, though. But what is therapy? It's whatever you want it to be. You can privately talk to someone if you feel like you're not dealing well with stress, you're having relationship issues, whatever you need. Time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about. See if it's for you, because you are your greatest asset. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and commentary listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash commentary. That's betterhelp.com slash commentary. Um, so... Um, uh, I've a uh, breaking news just c- coming across my desk here. Uh, a woman was found in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, who was not molested by Governor Andrew Cuomo. Uh, it's very exciting um, to find a woman on the planet Earth who apparently was not molested by Andrew Cuomo. Uh, we have uh, we have the sixth accusation uh, coming across our uh, our desks. Um, this one, a fairly graphic one and fairly recent, just a few months ago. Yeah. Summons a woman to his office, uh, reaches under her shirt, gropes her. Okay. What now? 
well, this is probably why folks should have kept their powder dry when they determined that the allegation that Andrew Cuomo had kissed a woman's hand and asked personal questions was roughly equivalent to every other allegation. Um, they're not. These are matters of degree. This one is is extraordinarily serious, probably the most serious uh, of any of the allegations that we've heard. And there is a cumulative effect. There is a quantitative effect. But it really shouldn't be, because if we're talking about justice and the meeting out of justice as we define it classically, um, then we should apply some discretion here. I mean, this is one that I can't imagine that anybody who is still a holdout will say, well, this is... No, it's criminal sexual assault. I mean, if criminal sexual yeah, assault. stranger I mean, you have, on the street, it's very clear what this is. <laughs> but every, most everybody's on record. I need a Lowry, who is a former uh, congresswoman. Lowy, Lowy. Lowy. Need a Lowy, yeah. Congresswoman from, from New York State. Um, I think Manhattan. Actually. Westchester. Westchester, yeah. thank you, New York area. Um, she called on um, Governor Cuomo to resign. And did so with, you know, the letterhead of the state Democratic Party, which Andrew Cuomo technically controls. So, I mean, the bottom really is falling out. The problem is, is that he has full control over his fate. Right. He, th- this is not, this is unlike the nursing home issues, which there could be an actual uh, a response by the assembly and the state Senate. Um, this one is is really just left to him and criminal prosecutors. I was just going to say, uh, if she files, I mean, th- he should be charged, and then that sets in motion a well, whole other. Well, I mean, she does. She does have to. She, she does have to, to have some form it, yeah. of contemporaneous evidence or something. And you know, we don't. We don't know who she is. We don't know where her name is. We don't know. You know, we don't know if she's crazy or not. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm not saying I believe. You know, I'm saying whatever, that she could but, set in motion the process by which it isn't a political process; it's a criminal justice process. Right. If she, if charges right. are filed, right. Um. So, uh, but what 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 is what what remains of um what remains of uh you know deep interest here is of course, once again, as Noah uh, alludes to, um, uh. Andrew Cuomo's uh, crime uh, over the last year uh, was the nursing home scandal. Um, if he is, in fact, a you know a serial uh, molester and sexual harasser, uh, I, that that in some ways is so entirely separate from this other question. Not that not that he can't be guilty of both. Obviously, I was just going to say, why not both? <laughs> yeah, why not? Right, that's right. Um, Personality so, would suggest that's just the beginning of our revelations. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I will say this, which is that which is that I've heard many many terrible things about Andrew Cuomo over the years from many people. Uh, nobody likes him. Uh, you know, his his political career has a, is an amazing quality for somebody who has. Uh, systematically alienated everybody the only person that I, I i can think of who sort of has this quality but is obviously a much more interesting and much more supple politician um is bibi netanyahu whoever whom everybody dislikes also but is really some kind of a you know towering genius um as a as a political actor but uh, nobody likes him but uh you know it's like i i feel like i would have heard uh that he was a, a handsy creep um, long before this, if he, you know, it's it's interesting that this allegation about his mal- malfeasance and misbehavior uh, is relatively fresh, whereas uh, every other thing in Andrew Cuomo's career leads you, let anybody who was following it to understand the nursing home scandal was well within his remit, you know, was was entirely the sort of thing that he that he would or could do. Um, doesn't mean it's doesn't I'm not saying it didn't happen it's just sort of interesting uh although of course there was this kind of uh, moratorium uh for uh, after Clinton uh for for Democrats and indeed for most public officials where you just did not have except for um uh same sex harassment stuff right Republican congressman you know the page scandal in 2006 and stuff like that um and you but, know uh, yeah uh, uh, and women who, after, after the first accusation came out, um, women who w- could potentially um, make further accusations against Cuomo have been contacted by his office. Um, uh, I forget who exactly. Um, uh, you know, just sort of checking yeah. in. You rich, know. rich as a party. His, uh, his, um, you know, his, uh, his Al Neri. Rich, rich as a party. Who is uh, 
Yeah, who who is like looking to get dirt on people before they might, or to or to yeah, or to or to give that kind of warning. Right. <clears throat> really charming guy, Rich has a party. The one who went out and said that uh, Janice Dean uh, should just talk about the weather, uh, right. even though her 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 in laws uh, died in nursing homes. Yeah. Um. Really a a, a lovely guy. <clears throat> you know, my, my, like my, my only problem, point is, yeah. so they they have worked to to keep things. Yeah. You know tamped down there was also right. a little another in addition to the nursing home deaths um there's been some further reporting that the similar policy was was pursued by the cuomo administration with regard to people with uh disabilities who are in in uh, care homes uh for them and that many of those people also died and they died alone because they couldn't be with their you know their families were not allowed uh, to visit them. And, and that is, you know, on, on, along with the nursing home deaths, just another, I mean, it's, it's a very tragic data point, but it's another thing that should be raised with regard to investigations into how his policies led. To you know, it's very, it's very hard to hear about all this stuff. It, it, it raises your adrenaline levels. It raises your stress levels. It's all, it's all the, you know, the crushing morosity of our times is, uh, is hard to live with. And that's why you might want to consider headspace your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. One of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation, Headspace really can help you feel better. If you're overwhelmed, Headspace is a three-minute SOS meditation for you. If you need some help falling asleep, it has wind-down sessions their members swear by. Its approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being with 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice. With mindfulness, it works for you and your schedule anytime, anywhere. You deserve to feel happier in Headspace's meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash commentary. That's headspace.com slash commentary for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash commentary today. Okay, I have one final thing to say because we need to talk for a few minutes before we go. This is out of totally out of left field. The other day, I sat down, it was on cable, all of a sudden I was flipping around, and Broadcast News, made in 1987, uh, came on, a movie that I adored when it came out. Uh, with uh, Holly Hunter, William Hurt, and Albert Brooks about you know uh, uh, the rise of uh, the rise of the uh, new media in, uh, in in television journalism, and uh, I still you know feel very warmly and hospitably toward this movie. And then it, it uh, here's what I wanted to tell you. So I had forgotten that it opens with a very peculiar sequence where you see the three leads as children. Uh, the three lead characters as children, one on a school bus, one screaming at a friend, something or other. And this opening sequence was so terrible. It was so bad that I, I can't believe that I didn't know at the time that it was this bad and how like cringe inducingly awful it was. Not funny, not interesting, uh, badly acted, badly conceived. And um, I was just thinking, like, is this what is this what happens to us either as we age or like what that uh, that you can just overlook this? Because I feel like today, if if this movie were released and it were on Amazon and you had to only watch it on Amazon, and you turned it on. And I was watching the first, you know, 45 seconds. I'd be like, what the hell is this? And I would turn it off and I wouldn't see the rest. Abe, as a big movie maker, have you had this experience of like just crushing disappointment with something that you remembered fondly? As a, as a movie viewer, not a movie maker. Yeah, I'm sorry, I meant <laughs> as a movie viewer. I got excited. Sorry. Um, sorry. Yeah. Um, have I had that experience? No, because I, I, because I, I like bad movies and good movies and 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 movies that are in between because I, I, there's something interesting about the way things fail. So if if it turns out something is bad, I it's interesting to me why it's bad. So I don't get I don't get crushed. But I, I have certainly noticed more so with books, really, that when I read something at twenty and uh, then read it again at forty or forty five, um, my my opinion of it is entirely different. And I, I you sort of I, I cringe sort of for the author and myself. 
I, I oddly sort of had this experience rereading Crime and Punishment, now that you mentioned it, which was a book that, you know, like, um, s- slaughtered me when I was, like, 19. Like, I, I mean, it, it was the most emotionally devastating reading experience I think I had ever had. And the intensity of it, the the brilliance of it, the horror of it, all of this just, like, gripped me from one... And, and then, as a reading it uh, older... Uh, I discovered what I didn't really understand, which is it's kind of a portrait of that more than it is an exemplar of that, because it's a book about somebody who is in himself in the midst of a, of a sick fever when he commits this absolutely horrendous act and is uh, on the verge of collapse and all that. I don't know whether I then found it as, in my mid-50s as a, a portrait of um, hysteria, that it's a book about hysteria, that when you're 19, you kind of become part and parcel of the hysteria or whether Dostoevsky was actually more overheated than I than I thought he was, and and more melodramatic and less uh, elemental than I than I thought he was. I don't know. You guys have any experiences that that, that share with this, or should we just? Uh... I, I I have two. Uh, I I re reread the Odyssey, which I had been assigned in college, and kind of like you know skimmed through. And I was struck by, I actually liked it more on the second reading, although I was kind of horrified by a lot of the the um, the tropes with, with which, you know, today's woke uh, students' heads would explode having to read and need all kinds of trigger warnings, that I didn't remember it being that graphic in some parts. <laughs> uh, but it was great. I read the Robert Fagel's translation. It's wonderful. I enjoyed it. I also recently rewatched John Wick, the first movie, <laughs> and I loved it even more because he barely says a word. He just goes about his business. He's kind of the perfect hero of our times that we need but like he doesn't over emote he doesn't he doesn't show off he just you know he gets mad because someone killed his dog and stole his car and he just deals with it and i kind of loved it all over again so a little lowbrow but very enjoyable (laughs) i i read somewhere that uh in the terminator arnold schwarzenegger's character speaks 19 lines throughout the course of the entire movie he has only as and you know some of them are four words long right they're not 19 lines of dialogue and i i would be surprised if keanu reeves had 19 lines of dialogue uh in 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 john wick um john the, best wick scene, is- the best scene is when you know he's he's talking to the russian mobster who who knows that he's going to come and you know wreak vengeance and the russian mobster is sort of try, flailing trying to trying to get him engaged in a conversation john wick says nothing hangs up the phone someone asks the russian mobster like what did he say and the russian mobster says enough <laughs> it's perfect um <laughs> John Wick is great. If you haven't seen John Wick, don't don't see the sequels; they're garbage. But uh, the first one, which came out of nowhere, um, also has uh, you know sort of revolutionized uh, action filmmaking in the 2020, 20, in 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 this century by returning it to a place where you actually understand where what people are doing and where they are situated in a place, and showing long sequences of people fighting uh, rather than cutting it up into 20 different t- cuts a, a minute where you have no idea what's going on. Um, it's really uh, quite dazzling. Anyway, with that, we will uh, we will bid you adieu having having uh, uh, having sandwiched our our, our uh, too, too many ads. We're going to be reducing the number of ads uh, in the coming weeks. Um, too many ads with uh, with with sufficient content. So uh, thank you for uh, for staying with us through this uh, ridiculously dra- dragged out uh, session. Uh, we will be back tomorrow for Christine Abenoam, John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>